Hello, and welcome to Writing the Coast. I'm your host, Megan Cole, and Writing the Coast is the official podcast of the BC and Yukon Book Prizes. This is your destination for interviews with the finalists and winners of our annual prizes. In this episode, you'll hear my conversation with Alejandro Freed. Alejandro's book, Changing Tides, An Ecologist's Journey to Make Peace with the Anthropocene, won this year's Hubert Evans Nonfiction Prize. For over two decades, Alejandro has inhabited the worlds of science, modern Indigenous cultures, and climate activism. In addition to being the author of two books, he is an ecologist for the First Nations of British Columbia's Central Coast and an adjunct assistant professor in the School of Environmental Studies at the University of Victoria. His research experience has spanned conflicts between industrial development and terrestrial life, the plight of endangered species, and the effects of overfishing on marine predators. Changing Tides weaves together science, traditional knowledge, art from a fellow BC and Yukon Book Prizes winner, and beautiful images of the places Alejandro works and learns. Alejandro starts our conversation with a reading from his book. Like many of my scientific colleagues, I am often overwhelmed. Climate change, ocean acidification, species extinctions. We contemplate these difficult issues constantly. I know well what it is like to just want to give up. It seems so easy, losing faith in humans. It promises relief from struggle and responsibility. Yet, whenever I have gone there, I have also felt empty, claustrophobic, horribly hollow. And apparently, I am too chicken to stomach those feelings. Whenever I have allowed myself to sink into cynicism, I have invariably jolted myself out of my catatonic state before hitting bottom and resumed swimming towards shore. As an ecologist working on marine conservation with modern indigenous peoples of the Northeast Pacific Ocean, I live at the crossroads of different worldviews and ways of knowing that, I believe, capture some of the best that humans have to offer to ourselves and to our non-human kin. We already have set in motion such rapid and ineluctable changes to our planet that both the traditional knowledge of indigenous peoples and science will have to remain fluid and adaptive in order to not become obsolete. Both knowledge systems are designed to do exactly that. When combined synergistically, they can provide us with the tools we need to keep learning as change continues and accelerates helping us connect with fundamental pieces of reality in ways that might allow us to remain our essential selves. This book is my personal journey through the interface of science and traditional indigenous knowledge. It is the story of why, despite the apparent evidence trying to talk me into doing otherwise, I believe in us. Different cultures, collective ways of perceiving, knowing, creating, and behaving in the world are combining today in ways that our ancestors who have welcomed That is the challenging gift that accompanies the ongoing transformation of our planet into something that, in many ways, would be unrecognizable to those who lived before us, even in the near past. I do not deny the losses that accompany that transformation. A planet in which wild salmon and ancient rainforests are being diminished is something to mourn. Yet I also like to think that, if they could catch a glimpse of our modern world, Departed ancestors from indigenous cultures of the Northeast Pacific Ocean would recognize the continuity of many of their fundamental legacies, such as adaptability to change and the responsibilities of knowing how to give and how to receive a gift. 
and above all, kinship. These legacies and more are held within the works that artist Michael Nicol Jagelanis gifted to this book. Michael described this gift as a symbol of the unprecedented solidarity that exists today among many indigenous peoples and of the alliances that are being formed between First Nations and settlers who came from far away. Michael is Haida. These people on the Central Coast First Nations I feature in this book were once dangerous enemies, but are now fierce friends. And despite the past and ongoing crimes perpetrated by some settlers and their governments against the original inhabitants of the land, today, millions of people from different indigenous nations and from settler groups are are working together globally to fulfill our common obligations of respect, gratitude, and reciprocity towards all living things. When Michael offered the gift of his art for this book, it reaffirmed for me that we live in fortunate times. Great. Thanks so much, Alejandro. So I wanted to start our in, our conversation um, by asking you to talk a little bit about the work that you do. You mentioned uh, that you're an ecologist in your preface there. And I was curious if you could talk about how the work you do intersected with how it came about that you wrote this book. Yeah, so um, so I work as an ecologist specifically for four First Nations of the Central Coast, the Wikinu, Heltuk, Kitesuheihis, and Nuhok. And um, what's um, really exciting about this is that you have these four neighboring nations that uh, basically got together in the early 2000s to, uh, you know, co- uh, collaborate in their efforts to protect, you know, their marine environment, uh, their access to traditional foods. And they were very interested in doing it by pairing two types of knowledge, their own indigenous knowledge as well as with science. They recognize the potential contribution of science. So I was extremely lucky to become aware of the possibility of um, working with these nations. And um, other colleagues of mine alert, um, you know, said, hey, they're looking for someone, uh, you know, that might, the skills they're looking might fit well with what you do. And, uh, and yeah, so I was able to connect with them and I ended up getting the position. And it's just been a tremendous uh, opportunity to not just to practice uh, conservation science, but to do it in a way in which uh, uh, the perspective of indigenous peoples is really paramount to where everything that I do uh, comes from and how the questions are shaped, how the research is done. And uh, through this, I mean, I really uh, I became aware of just uh, an alternative view of what humans can be. I mean, these are cultures that have been in place for, you know, thousands upon thousands of years. And, um, you know, and they've been doing so without depleting their, their resources over the millennia. And, and I thought that the story of this, this is what humans can be needed to get out into the bigger world. And I decided to tell it through the the context of my experience of working with with these nations. Yeah, it seemed like you were really kind of wrestling with this idea of whether it's in our nature as humans to to be destructive. Um, and I was I'm interested in why that was something you wanted to explore in the book. Well, that is the nar- the dominant narrative uh, in our you know I guess modern Western society is like look what we've done to the planet. You know, we've uh, cut down most of the forests. We're causing all these, you know, daily extinctions. We're acidifying the oceans and so forth, right? So it becomes really easy to, when you're looking at this, to come with a blanket statement that humans are destructive. 
But what this made me realize is that there is an ahuman nature. I mean, humans, uh, there's nothing ingrained in us at the genetic level, uh, you know, in a biological level, that means we must be destructive. It really comes down to, you know, what stories resonate with you. The stories that resonate with you, as in many indigenous cultures, are that, you know, we owe respect and responsibility to a are other non-human species, then you end up with a completely different narrative in which uh, humans are stewards of the planet. They're not abusers of the planet. And that uh, this Western dominant paradigm that we're here to use resources and it would destroy them you know, along the way, who cares? It, it's, uh, it's a very recent, uh, very cultural specific perspective that I think it needs to be debunked. Yeah. One of the really interesting examples that you used in the book was the rockfish and how they've been managed by Indigenous communities. I, I wondered if you could talk a little bit more about that example in specific and how it tells us a little bit about how we could approach climate change and resource management. Yeah, I I often think of rockfish as a real litmus test for you know the human capacity to you know, have a good relationship with other species. And the reason why I say that is because uh, it's really easy to overfish uh, many species of rockfish. And they they live a really long time. Some of them live a century or more, which means they reproduce very slowly. They grow very slowly. So they you know, get impacted by fishing really quickly. And also because they tend to live on local reefs, they're relatively easy to catch. So anybody with, you know, uh, some basic fishing gear that doesn't really have any principles of conservation can just go and deplete a reef really quickly. But um, so when you realize uh, that uh, indigenous cultures in our coast have been using rockfish for millennia without depleting them, then you realize how important it was to have intentional conservation practices that allowed that to happen. So, so there's evidence that they would uh, target only certain parts of the water column where the shorter lived species tend to be, which means that the, they're targeting the species that are less impacted by overfishing. They, they're leaving the old, longer lived species that live at the, at the bottom. They're, you know, they're not targeting those habitats. And, just, and other, other uh, things along those lines that you know, did not deplete rockfish over the centuries. So I, I think if you pass that test of not depleting such an easy, uh, de- easily depletable species, uh, it's a statement of that, you know, we can do this. I mean, we can, uh, as humans, uh, at, you know, apply similar ways of thinking to other broader conservation problems in, in a modern context and uh, do a lot much better than we've been doing so far. Yeah. The other interesting one that you wrote about was the seaweed that you went out to pick. And I, I thought that one was fascinating. Yeah. So um, this is the seaweed uh, uh, in, in, sci- in scientific terms uh, is the genus Pyropia. But there's many, uh, every indigenous culture along the, along the coast has a different name for it because it's just so such an important traditional food that Everybody uses it. Everybody gets has a name for it in their own language. In in my case, I got the opportunity to go with some uh, Helsinki friends out, and for them, the the term for uh, pyropia is uh, hagest. And um, it's uh, it's harvested in May. What what's particularly interesting about pyropia 
apart from its cultural significance, is that it's very sensitive to ocean warming. So during uh, 2016, 2017, the, the Pacific uh, Ocean was extremely warm, well above average by several degrees. And pyropia harvests basically crashed. And this brought tremendous cultural uh, hardship to coastal communities. Whenever I was talking to friends and colleagues um, uh, they would, at that time of year, during those years, they would say, oh, my God, there's no pyropia or there's no haggis. And it was really sad. And then in 2018, uh, ocean temperatures became more closer to what the average temperatures have been over several over the last uh, several decades. And it was a good year for Pyropia. So I got to be out on, on the intertidal with uh, my health sick friends, which included uh, Quainland Jones. Uh, and I believe she was 11 years old at the time. So it was just really special to see that connection to traditional resources from young people being brought by the, their elders on, onto the land and uh, just watching, you know, them, every, the whole culture of the people come alive with during the harvest. Yeah. It's interesting in the book because it really does address this intersection between scientific knowledge and traditional indigenous knowledge. And it's interesting in how you were talking about how you got into the work that you do, that you were invited in as a scientist to work with the indigenous communities. But I'm curious if you if you've seen it work the other way around. Has the science community embraced traditional knowledge in the same way? And and do you think this is an important step to take as we confront climate change? It's a, an extremely important step, and there are uh, several of my colleagues uh, are have basically reshaped their careers to in, in as genuine way as they possibly can uh, pair their work as scientists with the knowledge of indigenous communities. So it is a growing trend and those who are engaged in it and who want to uh, do it as genuinely as possible are, are really careful to uh, make sure that they're not just bringing a scientific perspective and being imposed on an indigenous community, but rather it's like, okay, how can we, uh, you know, combine our different ways of understanding the world in a better synergistic way? And, uh, and so there's a lot of listening, between, you know, from one side, from both sides to the other. And, and uh, what's really key is a lot of the questions that are investigated, and this is certainly uh, the case in, in my work experience, derive from the observations of traditional fishers. Uh, they, they're the ones watching climate change impacts uh, affect um, the marine environment with the seaweed uh, pyropia that, you know, all the work that's uh, being done on it has stemmed from, from, you know, observations of change. We can say this for numerous other species. So uh, I, I think this growing trend to pair science and indigenous knowledge is, is a sort of thing that can give us a much more optimistic future. In the book, you also um, address resilience and you talk about ecological resilience and also the cultural resilience of indigenous communities. And I was curious how you define resilience and how you think we should incorporate it into how we engage with each other and with the environment. Yeah. So maybe a, a simple definition of resilience would be the ability to absorb shock. So that means that you're not looking at a pristine state, whether it's, uh, uh, you know, an ecosystem or whether it's the culture, 
in which is remaining, you know, uh, you know, how it first uh, came to be. But it's kind of, you know, responding to all these changes and uh, to maybe get a little bit more explicit uh, in the cultural perspective, you have First Nations who, you know, have had all the shocks of uh, colonialism. I mean, we many of us are aware of the horror of residential schools and all that. So so it's not like they're going to go back to a pre-colonial stage after all this. But uh, by being what it would apply here in the concept of resilience is that uh, as they come out of this initial shocks, uh, there's these essential elements of their cultures, their stories, uh, their connection to place that remain what defines their essential selves. They might not be going out in a, you know, make in a dugout canoe to fish. That's not going to happen again, but it doesn't need to happen again. You know, getting on a skiff with modern equipment and going out and fishing in a way that adapts the earlier stewardship practices is an example of, of cultural resilience. In an ecosystem context, uh, you know, we can think of uh, the shocks of climate change, the shocks of fishing, uh, you know, kind of disturbing an ecosystem, but there's still the basic elements of how different species relate that continue to function up to a certain point. And that's the real key thing. We don't want to shock an ecosystem beyond that point. That would also apply to a culture. If we do that, then we're road resilience and the and the cultural the ecosystem can change to a place from which it, it doesn't resemble the, at all the original one. It's much more difficult for it to to restore itself in some way. So it's, it's really the short, um, you know, description of it, the whole concept would be not that change is not going to happen, but it's keeping that change within a certain limit that doesn't alter the fundamental way in which the culture or culture or the ecosystem works. Yeah. In in your preface and also in just what you said, it made me think of these uh, those relationships that have been built and have uh, have changed over time. You mentioned how at, at one time the indigenous communities that you work with may may not have worked collaboratively, may have been you know enemies so to speak, and how that's changed over time. And I think it's really a message that so many of us need to hear that in order to deal with this big thing, it's such a huge problem, climate change, that it does really take a collaborative approach. Um, and I wondered if you could talk about those, the importance of community in what you've seen and how you think we can uh, embrace that to face climate change. Yeah, and I'm really glad you're bringing that up because, you know, with our, in our modern world, you know, many things happen simultaneously. And, uh, you know, there's the more challenging, destructive stuff that, you know, like negative impact on ecosystems. But there's also how, you know, the whole social fabric has changed in ways that are, you know, definitely more positive. Uh, a lot of a lot of the uh, different coastal communities um, from First Nations would have not necessarily been, uh, uh, you know, at peace with each other in the past. I mean, and that's very different now in the sense that uh, these alliances uh, not only get, you know, have over, over you know, have surpassed uh, the old animosities, but uh, have turned into real collaboration. And, and in many ways, that's a product, uh, potentially a product of, of the modern world. And, uh, and it's important to embrace, you know, those new connections that are more positive than they might have been in the past. 
And I think that is uh, yet another sign of optimism of where we can go, where we can go from here. Yeah. Another uh, relationship that comes up in the book, and I know you, your first book was written for your daughter, and she's mentioned in uh, in Changing Tides as well. And I wondered what your what your daughter's response has been to the book and and to your work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So now there's no question that uh, much of my motivation for writing is uh, because I want uh, my daughter to um, see. Uh, the possibility of a better future. And I, I wanted her to know that uh, it's not like everything is rose colored. There's a lot of challenging stuff going on, but uh, there's all this sense of possibility that is still out there. And, and that really has been the drive between, for for my two books. We spent a lot of time talking about it, but she has not read either book. <laughs> so it will be interesting when she actually does. But in a way, she doesn't need to read them uh, for her to uh, be aware of all of the concepts that, that are in them. I mean, we've had so many conversations uh, over the years uh, about them. Yeah. And she goes out with you sometimes as well, too. So she probably experiences some of it firsthand. That's absolutely correct. Uh, I mean, she's 16 now, so she's, uh, you know, less inclined to go out with me. But uh, certainly throughout all of her early years and into the first part of her teenagehood, um, she spent a lot of time with me in the indigenous communities uh, out uh, doing field work. She co-wrote a scientific paper with me. And so that foundation is, uh, is certainly there. And it will be really interesting to see where she goes with it. Yeah. I wanted to ask about, uh, as you mentioned in the preface as well, um, that Michael Nicol Yachlanis uh, contributed art to your book. And I w- wondered how the two of you ended up working together. Yeah. So, uh, well, Michael and I both live on Bowen Island. I mean, he comes from Haida Hawaii, but he's been on Bowen Island for a while. And that's uh, in any smallish island, you get to connect with different people uh, at different times. And uh, so I've known Michael uh, at a cash flow for many years and and uh, uh, we've had some really good conversations. And one time I was coming back from a really horrible dental appointment and I was waiting on the ferry lineup and, uh, and I see Michael and I wanted to hide because I was feeling terrible and I didn't want <laughs> to talk to anybody. But uh, he came over because he's, you know, likes to have good conversations and uh, so we started talking and I mentioned that, you know, I was almost done with the book and he's like, oh why don't I donate some artwork to it? I'm like, seriously, Michael, I can't afford you. And he's like, no, 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 no. It's a gift. It's a gift. And it just went from there. I mean, it's, she's just such a generous spirit. It's just, uh, I would feel really, really privileged to have such a creative, phenomenally innovative artist that uh, contribute as a gift, his artwork. And we had some really interesting conversations that, uh, you know, basically helped me shape the preface. And uh, I thought his gift was so symbolic in the sense that there's generosity, there's this... Uh, uh, transcending cultural barriers where in where you know whether you're first nations or not we care about the planet and let's just work together thanks so much to alejandra for being on the podcast and thanks to you our listeners for subscribing and listening to writing the coast if you want to learn more about the bc and yukon book prizes don't forget to visit our website And if you want to stay in the loop about all things BC and Yukon Book Prizes, follow us on social media, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. 
Next time on Writing the Coast, you'll hear my conversation with Jessica McDermott, whose book Highway of Tears, a true story of racism, indifference, and the pursuit of justice for missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls, was a finalist for the Hubert Evans Nonfiction Prize. Thanks for listening to Writing the Coast.